is where we'll be reading from this morning. My goal is to get going and to preach an efficient sermon this morning. So you're welcome to turn with me and I'm going to give you a lot of scripture that I may just read to you. Luke chapter number two. We will consider this morning the subject of the baby in the manger. The baby in the manger. And verse number seven of Luke chapter two. I'll go ahead and read it to you once now, and then we'll get started with the message. The word of God says of Mary, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I love Christmas. I love this time of year. I love services like this morning where we can dedicate this time to the Lord and we can sing the songs that we've sung a thousand times, but yet somehow in that moment, the words grip us and we remember what it really is that we're talking about when we're considering the birth of Jesus Christ. Some people bring objections that I find silly and they're upset and think that no one who's a Christian should celebrate Christmas. They'll say, well, Jesus might not even have been born on the 25th of December. It was probably more like September. They think that if you put up a nativity scene or a Christmas tree, that it's akin to worshiping idols or point to the fact that at one point in time, the Romans and others celebrated the winter solstice around this time of year. And it was a pagan festival. I just want to say, I don't believe any of those. I believe it's worth celebrating Jesus' birthday, even if we don't know the exact day. If you adopted a child without knowing when they were born, I think it would still be okay to give them a special day to celebrate them and their life, and how much more so for our Savior Jesus Christ. If we put up a tree or a nativity scene and we don't bow down and pray to it, but rather use it as a marker to remind us of the Savior being given to all mankind, I think it honors the Lord, and I personally don't think there's any better testimony of the victory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, than that pagan festivals were replaced worldwide with the celebration of Jesus Christ. It's a victory of God. No one has to celebrate Christmas. I'm not saying the Bible commands it. It's a matter of liberty. But I know my Bible well enough that you can't tell me that I'm wrong for celebrating Christmas. The Word of God says, let no man judge you in this respect. As we consider the birth of Jesus Christ, we stop for a moment to consider the inherent joy of the birth of a baby. No matter who you are, even strangers or people who don't want kids or whatever it is, oftentimes when they see that newborn little baby so cute and so innocent, they want to say hi to the baby. They make a big deal because there's something that gives us so much joy and hope to see a new life being brought into the world My wife, Melissa, was an ultrasound tech for many years, and one of the privileges that she got to share in with people over and over and over again was that moment where you find out what gender your baby is going to be as she gave them the ultrasound. And one of the things that I love about the Hispanic community is how they value family, and they have big families and kids, and they all look out for each other. And uh, there's many of them in our area. My prayer is that one way or another, the Lord would allow us at some point to reach out to them with the gospel through a Spanish pastor or whatever that means may be. When we're living in an area with a lot of people from different parts of the world, we need to love them and reach out to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But one day she was doing an ultrasound and they, uh, it was a Hispanic mother and they crowded in there with five or six little kids and another baby on the way and they were all waiting to see what it would be. And she looked and she said, Nino. And they all started celebrating Nino and cheering and clapping because whatever the circumstances, a baby is a happy thing. It's joyful. It represents life, innocence, and hope. It causes many to grow up and take the next steps in life because when you have a child, you realize that it's not just all about you. But however, this birth of Jesus Christ was unlike any birth ever in history. So unique, so amazing. We've read it a thousand times, but to just stop and really consider what was taking place. Let's begin reading the scriptures here. Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. All of the known, uh, all of the world that was under his control. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. So, when they began to implement this taxation, the first step and what's taking place in Luke chapter 2 is sort of a census or a registration. They wanted you to go to the town you were from and register who you were, where you lived, what your possessions were, and then at a later date, they would come and begin to tax you and your possessions based off of what happened during this time of registration. But you couldn't just send it by the mail. You couldn't do it over a Zoom meeting. You had to actually go and travel without a car to the city where you were from. Notice what verse 4 says. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. We'll show here in just a few minutes that the Bible not only prophesied the Messiah would be the son of David, but it also prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. And as we look around us and sometimes we're troubled or we're rattled because there's evil people who do not know God and there may be people in positions of power who are doing things that we're worried about. Just remember that yes, God gives us some free will to make our choices, but there's a God in heaven who is sovereign over the affairs of men. It was not just Caesar Augustus' idea out of nowhere and it was a coincidence, but rather the sovereign hand of God had predicted this time and knew already what he was going to do so that Jesus would be born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem, just like the Bible prophesied. It was not an accident or coincidence. It was the sovereign hand of God and the foreknowledge of God that predicted this event would be happening when the Messiah was born. Verse 5 says to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, his betrothed wife, being great with child. I was studying this this week some while my wife was driving us to a Christmas party. And I said, there is so much background and things I'm reading that I'll just leave out because it's not all, all about, you know, the, the story we're pointing to this morning. But verse 2 and the different debates that people have historically about exactly the way that's free, phrased in the Greek and all the things that it means. But the being great with child phrase comes from a Greek word meaning a great swelling inside or pregnancy. That's what was happening. She was ready. She was at the end of the nine months and the baby was coming. And while they were, so it was while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. 
And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And in my reading this week, I understand that certain aspects of this Christmas story have been Americanized a little bit and put into our setting. For instance, the Bible does not say there was three wise men and the wise men did not come on the night of the birth with the shepherds. They rather came at a later date when Jesus was a little bit older. And some were suggesting that maybe being born in a manger wasn't as big of a deal because the the inn would be in a cave and the manger, the The stable would be adjoining to it. And perhaps some people had to deal with that uh, on a regular basis when travel time was heavy. And whatever the case is, I do think that if we look at the verse itself, we see there is a understanding given to us that it was a unique and different thing that usually would not have happened except for the fact that the inn was full and there was no Room. It says that the baby was brought forth and laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. In other words, if there had been room, or if someone had been willing to make them room, he would not have had to be born in the stable. We believe it's a stable because a manger is a trough that the cows or the sheep would eat out of. So the picture we get from this verse is that the inn was full. No room was made for the woman who was about to have a baby. So they had to go to where the animals were in the stable. The baby was brought forth. She wrapped him in the swaddling clothes, as was the Hebrew tradition. And when it was time to lay the baby down to sleep, it was not a bed or a crib. It was a manger. It was a feeding trough for animals. Whatever the case is, I still find a great sense of irony that the Savior of all the world, King of kings, Lord of lords, comes to earth in order to be born And there's no room for him in the place you would usually expect for it to happen. Much of the world today will celebrate this holiday this coming week and will make it about materialism and gifts and drunkenness and will have no room for Jesus Christ. Let it not be so for us as the church. Let us not at this busy time of year schedule the Savior out, but let's make it about Him. Let's worship Him in our hearts. But oftentimes the world has no room for Jesus and there was no room for Him on the very night He was born. Down later in the same chapter, verse 12 speaks of the shepherds being told, And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And verse 16 says, And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. I'm going to move quickly now. Number one, the baby in the manger was human. Hear me out. We know that's not all that he was. We know his origins. We know where he came from. We know he was truly God. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he entered the world at this time in a human body. Jesus became man without ceasing to be God. But he still became man. He still took the flesh upon him in order to be our Savior in order for us to be able to say we have a high priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, that knows what it's like to be tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, he became one of us. What an amazing thing. Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights, and the Bible says afterward he was and hungered. 
When he didn't eat, he got hungry. When he was on the cross being brutally beaten, he cried out, I thirst! And they gave him vinegar mixed with gall. When he didn't drink, he got thirsty. When they beat him, he felt the pain. When he didn't sleep, he got fatigued. He became a human to go through the same struggles that we go through in this life. But think about the fact that not just all his days and those descriptions of him as an adult and the human weaknesses he faced, but now picture him in a manger, a baby, God himself, a little baby, helpless, had to be taken care of, wasn't strong enough to get up and walk around and feed himself or take care of himself, but rather had to count upon his parents These were difficult circumstances for Mary and Joseph. Jesus shows us that if you're going to enter the earth as a human, you will have some of the things which accompany being a human, which is problems, difficulties, trials, and struggles. Because He entered as a human a world full of sin, where sin gives human beings problems. Joseph was a spouse to Mary. This was a betrothal type thing in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish community, and in their religion. It was not marriage. They did not live together yet as husband and wife, but rather it was a contract that they were going to be married, and it was so binding that it required a divorce in order to break the espousal or the betrothal. And one day, Mary, just living her life, getting ready to be married, gets a visit from the angel, we'll read about in a little bit, and says, you're going to have a baby. She says, I don't know how that's going to work. And then she's told it will not be the child of any human man, but rather it will miraculously be the child of God Himself. Joseph, just going about his business, excited no doubt to take his bride soon, hears of the fact that she is with child. And the Bible says he was a just man. He loved her. He was humble and willing for her sake to divorce her, put her away privately without public humiliation and shame and the punishment that comes of the law. But one night this just man, as he's pondering these things, gets a vision and the angel of God visits him as well and says, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for the child that is within her is of the Holy Ghost. Just imagine trying to wrap your head around what is happening, the thousands of years of waiting for this prophecy to come true, and all of a sudden God says it's going to come to pass, and it's going to come through you, Mary. And Joseph, go ahead and marry her, for she's bearing the child of God. What did they do? They decided to surrender to God's will and to commit to what God had asked them to do. And now at the end of the nine months of these pregnancy, and, and no doubt we, we use our imagination for things that are not recorded in the Scripture, but we imagine the gossip. We imagine the looks that they get as they go places. We imagine how there's no way that they would be able to explain to everyone what was actually going on, yet they just submitted to the will of God and decided they would welcome the Messiah into their home and raise... God from a baby. But as they get ready to it's the time of her due date, Caesar Augustus declares all the world should be taxed and because she was a spouse, they had to go together. And on the road, 
not in an ambulance, not in a vehicle, but riding on a donkey, traveling many miles away, all the while getting ready to give birth to a baby. These were difficult circumstances, yet they chose to do right. And as God's people, we should always value life and we should always protect innocence because no matter the circumstances surrounding a baby entering the world, no matter how difficult they are, sometimes it's the adult's fault, but it's never the baby's fault. And they're to be loved and cared for and cherished because they're image bearers of God Himself. They were doing the right thing. Now they had this difficult birth. When... Sarissa was born just a couple years ago. We went to the hospital about 9 o'clock in the morning and all the way till, what was it, 3 o'clock the next morning till she was born exhausted and tired and that type of a thing. But Mary did not have a hospital. She did not have an epidural. She did not have her mother with her or her family surrounding her. Yet there was still, despite the difficulty, so much joy around the birth of this baby. My wife showed me the video was a story of a a lady who had seven miscarriages before she finally gave birth to one baby. And they brought the baby out and set her up here on her chest. And she said, hi, I've waited my whole life to meet you. And no matter how difficult it is leading up to that moment, there's a lot of joy when it happens, and so it was with the Messiah being brought out as well. John 16, 21, A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is brought into the world. Let me tell you this Christmas season, as we make it all about Christ, let's also make it about the people that Christ gave us to love and care for. If you have children, love your children. If you have parents, love your parents. If you have siblings, love your siblings. If you have friends, love your friends and value them. Fathers, remember that the souls of your children are eternal. Sometimes we have to turn off the TV and care about the souls that God has entrusted to us and see what's going on with them and make our life not just about our hobbies and what we like to do, but about our family, about our loved ones. God's been so good to us. Whatever we may have or not have in our life that we wish we had or or didn't have, God's still been good and we still have a lot of opportunities to love people around us and influence them for Jesus Christ. He was a human. He was born into humanity and as such, as a little baby human, He was clothed in weakness and vulnerability. Number one, the baby in the manger was human. Number two, the baby in the manger was was God. The more proper way to say it is the baby in the manger is God. The God of I am who always has been, always will be, and who right at this moment is not on vacation or taking a nap or in a coma. He's God. Jesus said to the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. He was God. We talked about the prophecy, the book of Micah in the Old Testament, written over 500 years before Jesus Christ was born. And verse 2 tells us this, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee 
shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, written over 500 years before Christ. Isaiah 53, that we'll read in a little bit, was written 700 years before Jesus was born, yet it describes His life perfectly. The wise men, the magi who came from the east and from the land of Persia, they said, we've seen His star in the earth. We know the Messiah is going to be Jewish. Tell us, where is He going to be born? There's some debate. We don't know exactly how they knew that this star represented the Messiah, where they saw it or what it was. But some Bible commentators remind us that the men of Persia were greatly influenced by the prophet Daniel and by his writings. And in the books of Daniel, a lot of prophecy is given about this Messiah, including one that predicted to the exact year, 483 years after the order to rebuild the temple, the Messiah would be born. So perhaps they had been counting out the years, and now they saw this heavenly sign, and they came and said, tell us where he is to be born. And it was not at that point that the star moved and rested over where Jesus Christ was. You say, what's your point? My point is that the Bible is the word of God. We have not followed, Peter said, cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. And the hundreds of people who saw Jesus rose from the dead gave testimony of it in the Word of God and outside of the Word of God. And it matches perfectly. We know when the Old Testament was written. We know what was written in the Old Testament. And we know that Jesus Christ fulfilled these specific prophecies in a way that there's no reasonable explanation for other than the fact that it's the Word of God and Jesus is the Son of God. The ending part of that verse, Micah 5.2, it says the ruler will come forth. Then it says this of the Messiah, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting you see the baby in the manger, that was the moment he began to exist as a human. When he took on that exact form, that joining of a God in a human body. But that was not the moment he began to exist. The Bible said he would be born in Bethlehem and that the one who would be born to be the ruler has existed from everlasting. No beginning of days, no ending of days, no break in between. What did Jesus himself have to say about this? Some people said, well, Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet, but he wasn't actually God. What does the Bible say? John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's not just the Son of God. He is God, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Spirit, the Son. There's three distinct persons, but one God existing unlike anything else we could point to to describe it or come up with a human explanation of. He's not just the Son of God. He's God. He's king. He's creator of all that has ever existed. John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before there was a heaven, before there was a hell, before there was an earth, before there was Adam and Eve, before there was one angel, God the Son existed with the Father and with the Holy Spirit and shared equally in the glory. 
Another Old Testament prophecy again 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah 7, 14, listen. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. I'm going to read a lot of scripture between now and the last few moments that we have, if you can stay with me. But what does that name Emmanuel mean in the Hebrew? Matthew chapter 1 gives us the definition. Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 18. Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Remember that this was miraculous. This birth was unlike any other. He was not the son of Joseph as was supposed. He was miraculously the son of God, though his mother had never known anyone. Verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. He was also, it was also prophesied he would be born into the household and lineage of King David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Now it quotes Isaiah 7.14, but points out to us it was not the words of the prophet, it was spoken of God by the prophet. The Bible was written by men, but the Bible is not the words of men. The Bible is the very words of God written through men, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It says it fulfilled this scripture. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Here it is. What's the definition? Which being interpreted is God with us. Not just with us and not just God, but the description of the baby in the manger was God come to be with us, come to be among us, come to be one of us though he did not cease to be God. Jesus, in the Hebrew, the name is Yeshua. It means the God that delivers, or thereby implication, the God who saves. He would be called Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. That was the point of his coming. In the Greek, Joshua or in the English, Joshua would be the equivalent of Yeshua, and the word Jesus is a transliteration of the Greek word for Yeshua. It all means the same thing. It all is pointing to Christ as Savior, as Messiah, and as the God who saves. Yes, the baby in the manger was human, but he also was God. What did Jesus himself say? He affirmed he was God. John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I am my Father were one, are one. And the Jews took up stones to stone him. And they said, Because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. But it wasn't blasphemy. It was accurate. Yes, he was born as a man, but he was still God. I'm moving quickly here this morning. 
John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. The disciples were threatened and told, we don't mind you preaching so much, but from this day forth, don't prophesy, don't preach in His name. A generic prayer to a generic God does not offend anyone, but saying Jesus Christ said, I'm the only way to heaven, that's offensive and divisive and make, creates a dividing line and a rock of offense. And the disciples said, we ought to obey God rather than men. As I said, some say, well, Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good man and a prophet. But Jesus himself said over and over again, I am God. I'm one with God. I'm the only way to heaven. And if what he was saying was not true, then he could not be a good man, for that would be a lot of lies to tell. C.S. Lewis said he thought about it and he boiled it down to the famous Lord, liar, or lunatic. He has to be one of the three. And I declare, I believe with all that is within me, He's Lord. Nothing else makes sense. This baby in the manger lying there crying because he was hungry, needing to be changed, needing to be fed. This baby existed before heaven, before angels or man. This baby was God and had the power and authority to crush the earth and vaporize the planet in a moment and defeat Satan or any other enemy that would come. As Jesus told Peter when they came to take Jesus away to be crucified, Peter pulled out the sword and attacked the Roman guard and cut his ear off and said, I'll protect you, Lord. Jesus said, Peter, do not you know that if at this very moment I could call, I could call to my Father and He would send 10,000 angels to destroy the planet? But that's not why He was here. Judgment Day will come, but He was here to lay down His life for us. That transitions us to our third point. I'll read you Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 8. Says of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. You see what I'm saying? He was God. He did not cease to be God. But he let he took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Which brings me to my third point. Not only was the baby in the manger human, and not only was the baby in the manger God. Number three, the baby in the manger was born to die. Christmas is happy. Christmas we celebrate the Savior being here, and it gives us all the warm feelings. But what was the purpose of Him coming? Thou shalt call His name Jesus, because He shall save His people from their sins. He was born to die for our sins. And that moment of the manger and the moment of the cross are directly linked together because He could not have died for our sins if He hadn't come and been born. But He was born so that one day He would end up on that tree and die a brutal death for my sin. For all of our sins. 
I think I've got time this morning. I'm going to read you Isaiah 53. If you'd like to turn there and take it in a little bit better, it's only 12 verses. It'll only take a couple of moments. Again, written 700 years before Jesus Christ. But look at the words. I don't need to give commentary of it. Every verse will let you know this was talking about Jesus. This describes that baby and the life he was destined to live. Isaiah 53 and verse number 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And look at what verse 3 says about our Savior, about this little baby. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Mary was told, I believe, by Simon. He he said, this is the Messiah. God's revealed it for me. And he set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Meaning through him, many will experience the fall by rejecting him. And many will rise by receiving him. Then he said to Mary, and a sword shall pierce thine own soul also. Didn't take long when Jesus began his public ministry. He did not immediately see the crowds come and adore him, though he did have crowds. The crowds went away when it got tough. They were on him. They gave him a hard time. They called him a blasphemer, a glutton, a drunkard, and all kinds of dirty names and lies they said of Jesus Christ. They hounded him and the people who had the Old Testament and the the religion that should have pointed them to the fact that this is the Messiah, hounded him and despised him. And though that probably created a soul piercing, a sword piercing the soul of Mary, no doubt when he hung on that cross, tortured in a brutal death, her soul was experiencing a sword piercing through it because it's one thing to suffer, but it's another thing to see your child suffer. This was the destiny of Christ. Verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Why was He wounded? For what He did wrong? No. Verse 5 says, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one his own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears, is dumb, so he openeth he not his mouth. Verse 8, He was taken from prison and judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Another prophecy fulfilled. There we go. I found my place again. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, 
He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, meaning God will see the travail of the soul of his son Jesus Christ and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, the death of Jesus Christ is what we call a vicarious death, meaning substitutionary. He was not put to death for his sins because he never sinned once. But for my sin and your sin, He bore the sins of the people so that God could accept that offering and give us not what we deserve, which is judgment, but mercy, peace, and eternal life with God Himself. One more from Psalm chapter 22 and verse number 7. Speaking also of Christ, this psalm was quoted by Jesus Christ when Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was quoting the verse of this psalm. This psalm goes on to describe the crucifixion in verse 7. All they that see me shall laugh me to scorn. They shall shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Psalm 22 and down to verse 13. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted in the midst of my vows. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Isaiah also says that his form was so beaten that he did not even appear as one of the sons of man. If you looked upon him, you would recoil and say he doesn't even look like a human. That's how bad he was beaten. I'm done with the scriptures this morning. If you'll listen to me, I'll close and we'll be done. How strange. How ironic. That the answer to the questions asked throughout the ages. What is the meaning of life? Where is salvation found? What is the solution to the wicked problems we see in our world? What is the antidote for hate, violence, and death? Where would this be found if you were told there's a king that will enter the stage and solve all of our problems and conquer our enemies? You'd say, where is he? And could be told the moment he enters this earth will be as a little baby laid in a trough where cows eat from in a stable because he came to be accessible and to humble himself and not to conquer his enemies because he could have done that. But rather, the greatest victory ever won was accomplished by the most human, by the most powerful being in the universe volunteering to die clothed in humiliation. A baby in a manger wrapped in weakness, vulnerability, and humility destined for the cross. 
And one day when they, as Psalm said, pierced his hands and his feet, and he spread open wide his arms upon the cross, he took my shame, my dirt, my sin, every bad thing I've ever done, thought about, or will do, and my eternal damnation in the lake of fire, He took it upon Himself and He nailed it to His cross. Colossians says, taking the writing of ordinances that were against us, put Him out of the way and nailed it to the cross. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. In recent years, when there was a mass shooting, someone came out and they said, I'm tired of hearing people say they're giving their thoughts and prayers. They said, thoughts and prayers aren't going to fix this. In other words, their solution was, you know, start taking away some of the Bill of Rights and changing the laws. That'll fix it. Let me tell you something. The Second Amendment won't fix this. Neither will taking it away fix this. Because hatred in the human heart cannot be legislated away. God already fixed this. When 2,000 years ago, without a lot of fanfare, a man named Jesus, who was God in the flesh, laid open his arms to be nailed to the cross and pay for our sins. A man walked in, I'm done with this, a man walked in one day right before I was about to teach Sunday school class over here and I talked to him right back there on that back row and I said, good morning and is there something we can do for you? And he was shaking and he said, he said, I'm here because I'm a mess and I can't stop doing drugs. And I said, we're all a mess and that's the reason we're here. And during the Sunday school lesson, Brother John went in the back room and shared with him the gospel and he professed Jesus Christ as his Savior. The manger is linked to the cross and the cross is linked to an empty tomb where he got up and walked away and proved he was who he said he was. And his arms are open and he says through the gospel, who so ever will, if you will repent of your sin and unbelief, come to me and ask me to be your Savior. He who cometh to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. You may be cast out by a lot of people in this world, but Jesus Christ will take you just as you are, and He will save your soul. I beg of you today, if you've never been saved, to receive Christ, believe in Him as Lord and as Savior and ask Him, throw yourself upon His mercy and He will receive you. If God in heaven had left us on our own, we'd have never made it. But He came to us to where we, walk, where we were to be one of us, to die for us. And that's what Christmas means to me and to us as the church of God. As we say, no matter what other people do, we will honor Christ at this time. Let's bow our heads for prayer. If Rachel would just come and play for a moment, we'll have a moment of prayer before we're dismissed. If there's anyone who would like to pray today at the altar or where you are, or come to me with a prayer request or anything else, now is the time. Let's thank God for His unspeakable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ.
I love you all. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Praise the Lord for what he's given all of us. And I thank the Lord this